In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Tower of Ivory, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Tonight's topic is a very Catholic one, and also one that isn't really understood by a lot of people. Uh, and that topic is relics. Uh, perhaps you've been to uh, Siena, maybe you've walked into the Basilica of San Domenico, and you see St. Catherine's head just kind of hanging out there, her 600-year-old head. And there are all these flowers around, and it's a nice glass case, and it's you know very nice and built up, um, kind of like a gold stand that it's on, right? Maybe you, you've been to Nevers, France, and you've seen the incorrupt body of St. Bernadette. Uh, or maybe you visited Naples and you saw a vial of St. Januarius's 1,700-year-old blood liquefied uh, each year on his feast day. Uh, sometimes the parish has relics, or, you know, not quite as uh, drastic, but a parish might have relics out on display. Uh, and sometimes, if the parish does have those relics for a particular feast day, you can come and venerate those relics. Uh, so, relics are interesting, right? they're, and they're uh, even more to consider about them uh, and what they are and what they represent once we start getting a little bit more into the topic. The English word relic comes from the Latin word reliquiae, which early Christian times meant actually the same thing. The bones, ashes, clothes, or some other object that was used by a departed saint, or the remains of the departed saint uh, himself. In many cultures, the remains of people's beloved dead are held in high esteem, and they're given a different sort of veneration. Um, a lot of cultures, they have sort of burial rites or sort of funeral rites uh, around uh, how they say goodbye to their loved ones. So this instinct, right, this instinct is there, and it's within us to remember our heroes, to remember those that we shared an attachment to in this life. Heirlooms follow a similar pattern. Parents give something of theirs to their children, who might then, in turn, give it to their children. They don't break it already, you know, if it's, if it's not a toy or anything like that. But in this way, right, it's, it's sharing those bonds of love with your past. You can remember something about uh, your parents. You can remember something about uh, maybe your grandparents or whoever gave that, that little heirloom to you. Uh, this has also been really formalized in countries. Think about the tomb of the unknown soldier. It's not just in the United States that there's one of these. Um, there was a fighter in a battle who died and wasn't able to be identified. And in honor of his sacrifice, in honor of him giving his life for his country and in battle, uh, the grave is now watched over and it's cared for by the current soldiers of that country. Um, there's a lot of... Um, uh, a, a lot of, uh, not circumstances, um, a lot of ceremony around these tombs and, and the things that they do to honor the, the brave man or, or woman who's in that tomb. So why should our faith really be any different than what we do for, for these heroes, whether they're just in our own community, whether they're our, they're our beloved dead, or whether it's something a little more formal, like the unknown soldier? Uh, here's an early quote from about the year 156, Talking about the remains of St. Polycarp, his, his followers. Uh, you recall St. Polycarp, he was the successor of St. John the Evangelist. He took up his bones, which are more valuable than precious stones, 
and are finer than refined gold, and laid them in a suitable place, where the Lord will permit us to gather ourselves together, as we are able, in gladness and in joy, and to celebrate the birthday of his martyrdom. And this passage isn't unique. Uh, we find other early fathers of the church writing of Catholics preserving the remains of these martyrs. And in all accounts, there is this insistence on the veneration of them. Uh, and in veneration of those relics, we find a, another way to adore Almighty God, whose martyrs are with him in heaven. Uh, even St. Peter, when they found his bones, right, he was crucified upside down on the hill where the Vatican currently is. They leveled it a little bit and built a basilica there. But there used to be a Roman circus around it. Uh, and he was crucified upside down there. And there was a cemetery immediately next door. So to take him down very quickly, they actually cut his feet off. So when they found his bones, those were missing, right? And it kind of follows what was in our tradition. Uh, so it's uh, very interesting that even St. Peter, who died, you know, fairly shortly after our Lord ascended into heaven, that there was still this esteem for the dead and that we, we were made sure to preserve these great saints and apostles that came before us. Uh, but before that quote about Polycarp, there's another uh, quote about how his followers worshipped and adored Jesus as God, and that they merely loved St. Polycarp as his Jesus' disciple. Uh, and that was in rebuttal to the authorities. The authorities were thinking, oh, uh, if we give the remains of St. Polycarp to these Christians, well, the same thing that happened to Jesus is going to happen to Polycarp, so we better keep his remains. And there was a little bit of debate. They didn't want to give them back. Uh, because of uh, they were afraid of what might happen, another, another resurrection. Uh, but in that, we, we find that there's a separation. It, the veneration that we give to relics is not the same adoration, right, or latri in Latin, that we give to God alone. Uh, what's great about the, the quote about Polycarp's bones and having them in a suitable place uh, for them to gather together. Now that gather together, think about it. Right. What do we gather together for every Sunday? We gather together for Mass. So even in the early church, right, even in that first century and even before then, there was still this tradition of saying Mass over the bones or over the tomb of one of these martyrs. And we kept that. It wasn't until some of the reforms of Vatican II and the reforms of Paul VI that a priest doesn't, an altar doesn't have to have relics anymore. But until, you know, 1968 or whatever it was, um, Right, every single altar had to have a relic of a saint in it. Uh, so there, there's it's been a long-standing tradition in the Catholic Church. There are many ca different catacombs in Rome, and the Christians there had a similar practice. Uh, they would gather together in the catacombs, away from the authorities, right? Because Christianity was outlawed in the Roman Empire when it first uh, came on the scene, and they would say mass in the catacombs over the bones and over the the tombs of their beloved martyrs. Uh, so here we see at least two different Christian communities heavily influenced by the original apostles. Really, they're only one generation out, and the relics are venerated, and they became tied to the greatest prayer that we have on earth, the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Even with early evidence, some people out there might be doubtful about the whole relic thing, because, well, relics are never, never mentioned in the Bible, are they? They actually are believe it or not. They're mentioned in at least four places that I could come across. So the first big instance of biblical relics is in uh, Exodus chapter 13. When the Israelites were leaving Egypt, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him 
For Joseph had solemnly sworn the people of Israel, saying, God will visit you, then you must carry my bones with you from here. Right? So Joseph, remember, he was the one who saved his, his brothers uh, from famine and his father as well by going into to work in Egypt and the Israelites settled there. Right? Fast forward, they forgot about, the Pharaoh forgot about Joseph's, Joseph's good work and then started to persecute the Israelites. Well, Joseph, they remembered his words that he wanted to leave when the Israelites left. Very prophetic words. But this also, this passage speaks of the dignity of the remains of the beloved dead. It also ties together God's visiting his people with carrying those bones of Joseph. Because God's presence in a way, right, that visiting is tied with Joseph's bones. And that they'll follow, God's presence will follow the Israelites out of Egypt. Uh, and this isn't the focus of the whole Exodus story, right? There's a lot more with Moses and the plagues and, and the liberty that God offers us. Uh, but the fact that God would want to be there and make his presence known to the Israelites through Joseph's bones, right? It's a nice little addition to the narrative of the, of the Jews uh, following God out of slavery in Egypt. In Catholicism, and in a similar way, uh, relics don't take the center stage. They are worthy of respect and veneration, but they're, they're never what it's all about. Uh, the second and perhaps the clearest example of relics in the Bible comes from the second book of Kings, chapter 13. It contains an interesting quote about casting a dead man in the grave of Eliseus, and when he came into contact with his bones, the man came back to life. He wasn't a Jew. The translation makes it seem like he's more of a marauder of some sorts, right? someone who came in and was, was kind of fighting or causing some havoc in the land. But contact with the prophet's bones brought this man back to life. Uh, Eliseus, uh, he was the prophet that succeeded Elijah. Um, you might also call him Elisha or Elisha, uh, if, if you use a uh, different English pronunciation there. But he was the one who was given that double portion of Elijah's spirit. And the fact that Eliseus's remains brought back a man to life really drives home the point that God can work through the relics of, of holy men and women. He can work through the relics of holy martyrs because God uses these relics as instruments of his grace. He's chosen to work through them. Sometimes, as in this instance in the Bible, we can see those drastic effects. But like so much of our faith, uh, much of God's action and many of his gifts, they remain hidden from our own eyes. Think of all the unseen graces that God gives to those who are faithful to him, and they ask for help by calling upon his name and upon the saints. We're not aware of everything that God does for us, uh, and we're not aware of the things that God sets up in our life uh, for us to be graced later on. Uh, right? And if only we could see all of that, but we really can't. Uh, and the saints, they kind of... Uh, their relics can sort of focus our attention on God's action. If only one person comes to you and asks for help, you might help them or you might not. Uh, if two people come and ask you for help, it's a little more convincing, right? You're like, oh, well, maybe it's a family in distress and you want to do something a little bit more, uh, a little bit more so than if it was just one person. Well, when we pray for the intercession of the saints, we're not going before God alone, right? We're going with whichever saint we're praying to and whichever saint we're asking for help. Uh, he's, they're sort of supporting our case whenever we pray to them uh, and, and ask God to help us. Now from the New Testament, uh, let's read from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 19. God did extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, 
so that the handkerchiefs or aprons were carried away from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Now, this sounds like Paul was making relics, doesn't it? Just the handkerchiefs, just the aprons, whatever kind of clothes were put on his body and were given to uh, these sick people, right? They were healed. They were healed of either possession or they were physically healed from a disease. So we see that God willed to do these miracles through the hands of Paul, but these objects that touched Paul's life, that he prayed over, that were close to him, uh, there's something of God's power in those as well. There's something still connected with Paul, but Paul's always connected uh, to God in heaven. Right? And it's through that connection uh, that people can be healed, that great things and miracles can take place. The Acts of the Apostles, chapter 5, gives another account, not necessarily of relics, uh, but of how God's presence is brought to his people just by the presence of his holy ones, of his holy saints. In Acts, they carried out the sick so that St. Peter's shadow might fall at least on some of them, and they were all cured. Pretty incredible. People would just flock out and crowd the streets so they could get a glimpse, uh, even a shadow, sort of an extension of a person, not, you know, his body itself, but an extension. And that was enough to have all of these miraculous cures in, in the Acts of the Apostles. So think of this relic as being the body of St. Peter, uh, even though he was still alive. And when we go before a relic, we can't always physically venerate the, uh, the relic itself, right? We can bow down, um, but we can't always get up there and, and you know, venerate it with a kiss or, uh, or some other gesture, right? Sometimes it's attached to an altar, sometimes it's behind a display case, or sometimes it's up too high in an old church for us to read. But our prayers, right, they always reach the saints that we call on for help. Uh, if we were only in their presence and we have faith, we don't have to be physically touched by the relics to experience the saints' intercession for us. Uh, to God. Uh, so even though kneeling and praying, we're still kneeling and praying in the shadow of a, of a saint's relics, aren't we? Right? We could still have those same miracles happen to us uh, if it be God's will and still have some of those same healings just by being in their shadow and, and wanting uh, God to come to us. And I think it's worth thinking a little bit more about this idea of, uh, of physicality in the sacred scriptures. So in uh, John chapter 9, Jesus spat on the ground, made clay, smeared on the eyes of the blind man, and told the blind man to wash in the pool of Siloam. Right? Christ made a sacramental with his holy spittle. And then he gives the man orders uh, to complete yet another physical action, uh, that of walking, uh, of washing. If any of us spat on the ground and made clay, right, that clay wouldn't bring back the sight of a blind man. Right? And if we told a blind man to wash in a pool of water, that's not going to restore his sight. You wouldn't go into open up any medical journals and say, oh yeah, the, clear, the cure for blindness is spitting on the ground and making clay, right? It's not in there. You can't find it because it's not a natural way to cure diseases, right? This healing is a miracle because it's above the natural world. And in the regular order of life, uh, right, th those wouldn't be treatments for a person. But when Christ does these things and when he commands them to be done, he can work a wonder through them. It's a wonder through the physical world. Uh, the clay and the water of the pool, right? God chose these two means to heal this man. Another instance of, of physicality. Uh, in St. James's letter, chapter 5, he gives us the form of the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. He commissions Christians to seek out their priests 
so they can use holy oil to anoint and heal whoever is sick. Uh, physical healing sometimes happens with the sacrament of anointing, while spiritual healing always happens if they're open to it. And just like all the sacraments, uh, each sacrament has a physical component to it. And so oil is the physical component of the sacrament of anointing. In the second book of Kings, uh, Naaman in the second uh, was ordered by the prophet Eliseus to bathe in the Jordan. And if he, it, well, he was ordered to bathe in Jordan if he wanted to be cleansed of leprosy. Uh, now, if you remember, Naaman had tried all of these other cures back in his, his home country of Syria. And none of them worked. And Syria had cleaner water than the dirty old Jordan that was flowing through uh, the Israelites' land. But there was a spiritual significance there, that the Jordan was the place that God had chosen to work the, this miracle from. Right? And the prophet was aware of this. He knew that God wanted to, to touch Naaman there, except Naaman had to have some belief. He had to know and trust in the, in the prophet and trust that God really was going to cure him if he did this. So from this old part of the Bible, we get the idea of holy water, that waters designated by God, they can be special conduits of God's graces to flow through them. Uh, so it's not just relics right, in our faith, uh, but relics and even sacramentals. Uh, if you ever have blessed salt or you take holy water from the church, they're all sort of tied together with that physicality in, in our bodies, uh, even though they all have spiritual significance. When a priest performs the rite of blessing of holy water, Whatever water he blesses then becomes designated by God uh, to protect everyone who invokes the most holy name of Jesus and uses that water, right? So instead of just being the Jordan or just being this other water uh, through uh, his priests, right? Christ can make his presence, can make his grace even more here in this world and touch even more people. All of these instances make it abundantly clear that matter, right? Physical matter. It conveys grace and that both sacramentals in the church and venerating relics, they're not unbiblical practices, right? We see their origins in the Bible in multiple places, Old and New Testament. Uh, they are there. Uh, the theological explanation of relics and matter has everything to do with Jesus Christ himself, right? It's this incarnational principle that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. He chose to take on our human nature, and in doing so, he was physical in that human nature. So we are, as humans, we're composites, right? We're made of two things, body and soul. Body is physical, soul is spiritual. Uh, the body is material, uh, but the soul is not. You can't point to my arm and say that my soul is there, or if someone loses a finger or something like that, you can't say, oh, he lost part of his soul. He did not, right? The soul is immaterial, and it's not. Uh, it, inf uh, it forms the body, right? It's, it's its form, and it gives life to the body, but you can't, you can't pin it down and say that it's anywhere. As human beings, our nature is actually a reflection of Jesus Christ and his incarnation. Uh, we see this so many times as Catholics. Natural, material things become signs of God's incarnate divine love, both for himself as the second person of the Trinity loved by and loving the other two members of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then we can turn to the beginning of the Gospel of St. John, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This seems to have been, have been God's plan for the material world all along, that it would be a reflection in his own wisdom, and that it would all point creation back toward himself 
and back toward the person of Jesus Christ. As humans, right, we have our senses, and that's how we understand the world. Uh, and thanks to God's continual work in the world, uh, material realities, they can become sacred signs to us that we can understand through our senses. Now, if someone lost all of their senses, right, you have those sensory deprivation pools. They wouldn't be able to really learn anything. They'd just be, kind of be stuck there, as we would. But God's given us the senses so that we can learn about our world, but most especially so that we can learn about God. Who has acted in the world. Relics show us how even what appears to be dead in this world is still held in existence by God, and it still bears the mark of its creator, who, uh, who works in and works through everything that he has made. It was through Jesus's body that he could do everything a human could do. His body made it possible for crowds to touch him. Uh, more than once in the Bible, we get the impression that crowds would press in on Jesus, and they would try to touch him, even the hem of his garment, to be healed, and then that was enough for them. Jesus did not want to deprive us of his presence here on earth, so he left him, us himself as the Holy Eucharist. Uh, God uses our bodily senses to make us even more aware of him. Uh, the material world is what we live in, right? The material world is how we get most of our information, unless God you know, infuses it into us, which is uh, much more rare. Uh, but it's then through faith uh, that can take us to the next level, so to speak, that God can touch us physically and then lift us up to touch him spiritually. We as human beings, we are wonderfully made, and God made us to be so. He designed us that way so we could meet him in a physical manner, uh, and then he could draw us back to himself. Right? God wanted yet another way to touch us. If you were like the angels, the angels cannot touch God. Right? They don't have physicality to them, uh, but we can. Right? And in heaven, after the resurrection, when we get our bodies back, we too right, will be able to touch God. Uh, so we, our physicality is, is really, it's hardwired into us. And even though the saint's uh, joy is complete in heaven, it's still not as full a joy as it can be until they get their resurrected bodies back. All sacramentals and relics point towards God's action and God's presence in Christ. Christ's presence in the world points all creation back to its creator. But we must remember that material things are not God. Uh, we're never to adore relics or any of God's creation. Adoration is to be set aside for God alone. If we give adoration to anything or anyone but God, then we would commit the sin of idolatry. So we should never uh, confuse creation with the creator. Uh, we are also not about superstition or thinking that relics are magic, because they're not. Uh, relics are another way that God works in the world and comes into contact with us. Uh, things that are magic, they, it's kind of like the formula, you do this and this other thing happens. That's not prayer. Right? Prayer isn't just putting a, you know, a coin into the God box and hoping that you get whatever you prayed for out of him. Uh, that, that's absolutely not true. Prayer should be all about us changing uh, to match God, us changing to accept the grace from him. Sometimes God, God always wants what's best for us. And sometimes when we change, right, then we, we get what we wanted. But other times, it's not what's best for us. It's not what's best for our souls. And so God doesn't give it to us, right? But he'll give us something else that's better. We might not see it at the time. We might have to wait for it. But God always gives us better than what we deserve. Uh, earlier, I had mentioned that we're not all about, you know, carrying around dead things. 
in the church everywhere we go just as an end in and of itself, right? We don't carry around bones just because it's we're carrying around the bones of a saint. As Catholics, we're all about that incarnation that I was talking about, about finding and encountering God within the world. And the relics of the saints, they help us to do that. They extend and they strengthen God's presence in our day and age. When you realize what relics are and what they mean, uh, then you can rejoice in God who is near to us, who's chosen to be near to us, not just in the Holy Eucharist, which is, you know, uh, crazy awesome, you know, best way we can be near God in this life, but he's chosen to be near us in all these other ways as well. Uh, the big takeaway is that God can convey blessings through matter. Uh, Jesus Christ took on flesh. He is a divine person who is true God and true man. Us humans being designed as we have been, we need God's grace. And God has designed us to give us that grace through visible things, through visible signs. And since these signs, we can see them, we can comprehend them and sense them, then we can also understand uh, the spiritual condition that matches them. For instance, with the sacraments, we can understand that the newly baptized are in a state of grace. Uh, being able to understand this is because we can see the water being used, that it's a cleric of the church, that they say the right words, right? And that they're performing the sacrament of baptism. We have the spiritual understanding of this person's condition uh, after we've seen them, after we've seen what happened to them, and after we understand what it is that the church is doing. Uh, so God makes that visible uh, and through his salvific action of dying on the cross, he makes that, extends that to all time through his church. In the old 1917 Code of Canon Law, it reminds us that the saints are reigning as one Christ in heaven. The basis of Canon Law is theology. Right? Church law tries to draw out these principles of theology and then tries to formulate those into laws, sort of guiding principles for uh, the church to follow. Uh, the saints taking part in the one reign of Christ, uh, these saints are reigning in heaven. These saints as the king reign as the king reigns. And that's another profound truth that allows <laughs> us to venerate relics. They're taking part in Christ's kingship in heaven. Why we should treat their remains as sacred is because these saints, especially the martyrs, they mingled their blood with the victim of Calvary. They shared in, in a profound way in Christ's passion and death. And so, therefore, right, they're, they're worthy of our love as well. Not as much love as we would give God, but we can absolutely love them for taking part in uh, the Lord's passion, for, uh, for giving this great witness to us in, with their lives. An even older document about relics is from the Council of Trent. The holy bodies of holy martyrs and of others now living with Christ, which bodies were the living members of Christ in the temple of the Holy Spirit, and which are by him raised to eternal life and to be glorified, are to be venerated by the faithful. For through these bodies, many benefits are bestowed on men by God. As temples of the Holy Spirit, relics make God more present in our lives now, so we might all be eternally glorified later in heaven. And the Council of Trent makes it very clear there, too, that we do owe relics our veneration, that this is something that is good for us to do, and that Holy Church has shown us uh, that we, we really must do. The sacramental idea of relics is related to that existence of the human person and to creation. Relics, like any other miracle, transcend just the merely biological sphere. They make us consider life in a supernatural light. Uh, the human person 
cannot be fully understood just by our biology alone. Just like we cannot understand relics if we approach them by just what they physically are. We have to view them through the lens of Christ's incarnation. We have to view them through the lens of faith to be able to access those graces, to be able to give them the proper respect that they are owed. There are some regulations that you should know about relics. Before it's exposed for public veneration, it must be authenticated as a true relic of the saint that it says that it is. Uh, wherever their, a saint's remains might be, there's always going to be a priest or a bishop or a cardinal uh, in charge of protecting and preserving those relics. And if a priest or one of the faithful, they want a particular relic, they petition whoever's in charge of those relics. Uh, sometimes it's the superior of an order, sometimes it's a diocesan bishop, uh, they might give a donation uh, of, of some sort. Uh, right? Sometimes the people who are protecting those relics and guarding them, they have the relics ready to give out. But other times they wait for enough requests to come in and then they'll go in once again and they'll, they'll make new relics for, for all the people who, who want to venerate the saints. If the request is approved, a relic is taken out and put in a reliquary. So the reliquary, it's a little, um, it's a little metal uh, round box and there's a wax seal put over the relic itself, which is inserted into that box. So the relic can't be removed from its resting place. Uh, there's also a document that's issued with that and it has a matching seal so you'll be able to say okay this relic with with this this paperwork and it'll be uh, very official if the relic must be resealed or it gets broken somehow or the glass breaks uh, you have to drop new paperwork and there has to be a new seal reissued and the seals have to match and the church takes this uh, very seriously that uh, all the paperwork has to be in order for public veneration the church approves of honor being paid to those relics with reasonable probability and are believed to be genuine and which are invested with you know the due ecclesiastical sanction that the faithful have prayed in front of them for a long time that they've been in a certain church for centuries right and you can date it pretty much back to where it should be uh, the church says that it's reasonable you don't have to have you know everything explicitly put out for everything uh, if the paperwork is ever lost however the relic must be removed until you can get uh, a, a new new paperwork drawn up for it and, and issued. Uh, unfortunately, there were many clever yet evil men in the Middle Ages. They falsified relics and they sold them. Uh, relics, they were, they're never allowed to be sold, right? This would be the sin, the grave sin of simony. Uh, remember from the Acts of the Apostles, Simon was a magician and he tried to pay the apostles to make him an apostle, or at least give him the Holy Spirit so that he could do the same things as them. He wanted, you know, the apostolic powers to be able to heal people and, and uh, do everything else that he saw them doing. So simony was condemned by the church and all the sales of it, of relics and holy things are invalid, as well as all offices within the church that someone pays for, all of those are invalidly gained. Some might be confused by how many relics of the true cross there are. Uh, doubters say that if you put them all together around the world, that the true cross would have weighed, you know, uh, several tons. But the distinction, there's a distinction there that a lot of the doubters, they fail to make between different classes of relics. So first class relics are taken directly from the corpse or the remains of a saint's body. Sometimes it's a piece of bone, sometimes it's a little bit of their blood, right? Sometimes just some tissue. Um, or some sinews around a, a joint, right? Those are all first-class relics. Second-class relics 
are things that belonged to the saint or they were connected with his life. So for instance, we have no first class relics of the Blessed Virgin Mary because she was assumed into heaven, right? Uh, we do, however, we have her mantle and we have her wedding ring and we do have the cradle, the manger that uh, our Lord was put in uh, at Nazareth. That's in Santa Maria Maggiore in Rome. We also don't have first class relics of St. Joseph so this might mean that perhaps St. Joseph was assumed into heaven, but we've sort of lost that tradition if it was a tradition within the church. Uh, even though the church has not made any official pronouncements on St. Joseph, it's interesting to think about, you know, why do we have um, relics of certain saints but not others? Uh, Third-class relics are items that have been touched to a first-class relic, and by doing so, they themselves have been made relics. Uh, each class of relic, what you should note, is that each class of relic is just as much a relic as the others, and they're only put into different classes to let you know the proximity to the saint uh, that you're, you're venerating. There's a story about Pope Gregory the Great. This Pope's relics underneath his altar in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. Uh, beneath that altar, there lies a, a white marble sarcophagus containing the relics of Pope St. Gregory the Great. He's alive from 590 to 604. And he's also a doctor of the church. He was the first pope to adopt the title, Servant of the Servants of God. Uh, the mosaic altarpiece above his altar uh, it has a, a picture. So in the Vatican and uh, Basilica of St. Peter's, they don't have any original paintings out. They put all mosaics in uh, that are very close to the originals because of all the uh, photograph photographs that get taken. The flashes would destroy the pictures. So they've done that so people can still see some of the beautiful artwork that the Vatican has stored away, um, but the people can still come and, and enjoy it. Uh, so above that altar, that mosaic, is the miracle of St. Gregory, and that dates from the year 1772. The story goes that a wealthy Roman nobleman desperately wanted a relic of St. Peter, and he begged St. Gregory until he finally succeeded to the request. So St. Gregory laid a linen corporal, Right. Corporal is uh, a type of cloth that the priest uses at Mass that he offers the, the sacrifice on, all of the, uh, the gifts of bread and wine that he's going to um, transubstantiate, right? All of those go on the corporal. So that's the type of cloth we're talking about. He laid the corporal on that altar that's connected with St. Peter. Uh, so you can't, St. Peter's tomb is buried way deep down, kind of on the same stone, but uh, up top, the altar is built right on top of it. And St. Gregory put the corporal on there. And when St. Gregory gave this third-class relic to the nobleman, the noble became obstinate because he wanted a real relic, right? He wanted a first-class relic of St. Peter. St. Gregory tried to reassure him that this relic was indeed a true relic of St. Peter, just as any of his bones would have been. When the noble continued to be obstinate, St. Gregory took a pin and he stabbed the corporal, and immediately the corporal began to bleed, right? So... St. Gregory once again showed one of the many reasons why he was called great within his lifetime, but he delivered to all of us who come after a reminder that relics truly connect us with the saint, that it doesn't matter whether it's first class, second class, third class, right? They're all just as much relics as the other. They're all worthy of our veneration. And being a real connection with the holy saint, uh, yes, that's important, but what's more important is that they connect us with God. Uh, and that they're a conduit that we can have God's grace flow to us through. Now, understanding this, uh, one can understand how there are so many relics of the true cross. Many of those relics are third class. Most of those relics are third class. But they are just as much the true cross 
as if there, that wood had been part of the first cross 2,000 years ago. Uh, so once again, we see how mysterious our faith can be, how God's love cannot be restricted by any physical matter, but he actually uses physical matter to extend his love into the world. That physicality of relics is part of God's plan for entering into our lives. Uh, think of their imitation given by God so that we might go to him, we might thank him uh, for the witness and the guidance of such saints, but ultimately thank God because God is the one who gifted us those saints. God is the one who gifted us their lives and their virtues. Relics are another aid to help us realize that everything in this life is a gift from God. Uh, and this is God who never gives up on us, but who tries in so many ways to get our attention and draw us back to himself. So this concludes my talk on relics. I haven't figured out the dates, but my next talks will, they are going to be shorter in length. But what I want to do is I just want to give a little introduction to each book of the Bible, all the different ones, kind of, if people want to start reading it, um, reading the Bible through, you can at least go back and listen to a recording and have kind of some um, baseline for, you know, what, what is this book that I'm, I'm reading right now and how, uh, how I could approach it and, and pray with it. Um, yeah, I might highlight some passages here and there, but it's really just to give you a little bit more uh, context of what's going on there. So do you have any questions about relics? Okay, sure. What relic do we have at the church? What relic do we have at the church in the altar? We do have an altar stone, but I haven't found any paperwork for it. So I'm not sure. Altar stones are a little bit different in that sense. Um, a lot of them, a lot of churches that I have been, they don't have the paperwork for the altar stones and it just kind of gets lost or they never do it. Um, or maybe it's kind of inside the altar. You have to open it up to look. Maybe they carved it somewhere. Um, but I don't know. But there is one there. There is one there. Yep. 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 So. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit come down on you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen.